Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. I invite you to take your Bibles and let's go to 2 Peter. You know the book. 2 Peter chapter 2, we're going to begin reading in verse 10, the latter part of verse 10. We'll do that in just a few moments. I'll wait as you find your place. We're going to continue our look at this book. My title tonight is Testing the Heart of the Teacher. Testing the Heart of the Teacher. I want us to think about false teachers. They've been around a long time, yes? From the garden. From the serpent in the garden saying to Eve, you surely will not die. To the pagan priest who operated in the ancient world. To the false prophets who continually arose among the people of God in the Old Testament. To the religious leaders who stood opposed to Jesus. To the instruments of Satan who masqueraded as angels of light in the early church, and to the false teachers today, often accessible by the internet and social media, and often many times popularized by their message of prosperity. False teachers are a part of our fallen world. The question is, what do we, what do, we do with false teachers? Well, seems to me that sometimes our response is to rightly confront them as we must, but we do so with the spirit of spiritual pride and haughty condescension, and we confront them without ever looking at our own lives. I think the harder thing to do is to indeed point out their error as we must do, and do it with Holy Spirit courage that we must have, while at the same time asking the question, Lord, am I ever like them? It's harder. It's harder to judge them rightly, while also asking, do I by any chance ever let false teaching invade my congregation? Even as we point out the errors of others, do I, by my neglect and my lack of oversight and poor shepherding of a congregation, somehow let the enemy snake his way into our church through false teaching? So tonight, as we look at at 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 10, we're going to look in both directions. We need to look at the false teachers, and we need then to look at ourselves. We need to ask, how does this apply to us? And so we turn to Second Peter. You've been with us this semester. This book, as our other chapel speakers have told us, have shown us, this is a call to, to godly living. It's a call for believers to show the, the moral transformation that the gospel works. And in that context, Peter knows that he must confront the false teachers. He must 
point out their errors, if God's people are going to live the lives that they are called to live. So he points out the false teachers. We don't know precisely who they are. Dr. Shaddix, Dr. Milioni, others throughout the semester have shown us that, that we at least get some picture of what they were teaching. We know that they secretly bring in false teachings. They are deceptive in the church. They deny the truth of Christ even as they claim his name. They promote sensuality, sexual abandon, without risk of judgment. They're greedy, making their money by exploiting others who turn to them as, as teachers. They deny the reality of judgment, instead teaching that how one lives really doesn't matter. To put it simply, these are problem people in the church. The very kind of teacher we would want to stand against and warn about. And that's precisely what Peter does in tonight's passage. He, he emphasizes, he drives home, he pounds away at the character and the influence of these teachers. Their character is ungodly, their influence is evil. He piles up descriptions using word plays and literary devices that we can't see in the English to say to his hearers, you better recognize who these people are because they're destructive. And should any of the false teachers be listening in, Peter wants them to know that they're not getting away with anything. The very judgment that they deny will be theirs. In fact, one writer Put it this way, I love this quote, and it will lead us into the reading of the word. He wrote this, It is as though the preacher looked out at a congregation and saw those most in need of the message yawning on the back pew. In response, the author goes on a rampage of rhetoric. That's about what we're to read. So look with me at Verse 10, we're picking up in the second part of the verse. Listen to how Peter describes these false teachers, bold, arrogant people. They're not afraid to slander the glorious ones. However, angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a slanderous charge against them before the Lord. But these people, like irrational animals, Creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, slander what they do not understand, and in their destruction, they too will be destroyed. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. They consider it a pleasure to carouse in broad daylight. They are spots and blemishes, delighting in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery that never stop looking for sin. They seduce unstable people and have hearts trained in greed. Children under a curse. They've gone astray by abandoning the straight path and have followed the path of Balaam, the son of Bosor, who loved the wages of wickedness but received a rebuke for his lawlessness. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These people are springs without water, mist driven by a storm, 
The gloom of darkness has been reserved for them. For by uttering boastful, empty words, they seduce with fleshly desires and debauchery people who have barely escaped from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption since people are enslaved to whatever defeats them. For if, having escaped the world's impurity through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in these things and defeated, the last state is worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than, after knowing it, to turn back from the holy command delivered to them. It has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its vomit, and a washed sow returns to wallowing in the mud. Now, there's much here, and several phrases and ideas that that commentators debate about, but what I want us to do is do exactly what Peter does in this book. I want us to walk through his description of these false teachers, and so we start with that, and then as you read on in the book in chapter 3, Peter moves into some application for his hearers, and so I want us to see the enemies, see the false teachers, hear their characteristics, and then we'll move at the end to application for us, and so... Let's begin by looking at their character. We find this in verses 10 to verse 16. Their character is ungodly. We start there. Their character is ungodly. I'm struck by the fact that Peter hints at the content of their teaching, but he puts under the magnifying glass the nature of their character. It's a point that we need to hear. Because you know what? It's, it's possible to deceive with words for a while, but a rotten character will eventually make itself known. So Peter looks at their heart and look at what he says. They're bold, arrogant people. Bold and arrogant, unafraid to teach what they teach. Little fear of accountability and judgment. They assume they're right, and so they speak as they wish. They speak, as Tom Schreiner has written, with confidence without humility. Bold and they're arrogant. They're so bold and so arrogant, in fact, that they are willing to slander the glorious ones. The glorious ones, that's the glory some versions read. That's one of the strange texts that we have to unpack, and most likely it means, particularly as we look at the next part of, of verse 11, however, angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a slanderous charge against them before the Lord. When we put the glorious ones in that context, it's quite likely that Peter was saying, these are people who slander evil angels, almost mocking their existence, almost ridiculing the powers something even good angels would not do. In fact, Jude reminds us that the archangel Michael would not rebuke the devil himself, but he would instead leave that in the hands of the Lord. Not so with these teachers. They are so arrogant. They're arrogant enough to blaspheme the powers, even evil ones more powerful than they are. 
So now it shouldn't surprise us that, that these false teachers themselves, tools of the enemy, themselves, tools of the enemy's forces, it shouldn't surprise us that they would deny their existence or treat flippantly their power. Because those who are deepest in the devil's grasp are most likely to pay very little attention to his power. They're bold. They're arrogant. They slander the glorious ones. And then we continue on. Verse 12, but these people like irrational animals, creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed, slander what they do not understand. And in their destruction, they too will be destroyed. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. The, the critique gets scathing here. They're like animals. They're irrational. They're living according to instinct as if they were created only to be slaughtered with no sense, no sense of, of eternity. They live according to the flesh. They teach about things they do not understand. Peter reminds us Again, as he's done previously in this chapter, he reminds us again of their ultimate judgment. Because remember, part of what they're saying is there is no judgment to come. And what Peter will say to them multiple times in this section, yes, it will. He says this, he looks at them, reminds them of, of this direction. They're like animals caught in the hunt. They will be caught in their own snares. Even as they destroy others, they will be destroyed. And even as they harm others, they will bring harm on themselves. They will face the very judgment they deny. Peter wants them to know that. He wants the church to know that. Then we read that they carouse in broad daylight. They consider it a pleasure to carouse in broad daylight. It's one thing to sin in the dark. It's still wrong. But the hiddenness of our sin at least suggests some level of shame. It's a whole other matter to sin in broad daylight. Not even the pagans would have lived this way. But not these false teachers. They sin publicly and openly. And we even read, and this, this catches us by surprise in some ways, we even read that they carry out their sin even as they share feasts with the people of God. So we get the picture. Likely they're sharing the love feast that, that accompanied the Lord's Supper. And so they, they meet among the people of God as if they were one of the followers of God. And even that very setting they use as a site of sin. They're blemishes on the church. They're blemishes on the church for whom the unblemished Lamb of God died. And we keep reading. It just goes on. Verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery that never stop looking for sin. They seduce unstable people and have hearts trained in greed. Children under a curse. Their eyes are, are filled with adultery. Sexual sin is always on their mind. Their eyes see bodies to be used before they see souls to be converted. 
Everywhere they look, including in the church, they see potential sexual partners, even if only in their mind. Then we read, and we'll read it again, they lead others into sin. They ensnare others. The picture here is, is a fishing picture. It's the picture of bait dangling in front of others. And these, these deceitful teachers particularly look for the weak and they prey on them. That they too might sin and the false teachers would not sin alone. And we read then that they're Hearts are trained in greed. Trained, it's an athletic term. Like athletes, they practice day after day after day going after more. They put forth maximum effort and energy and time to get more and more and more. Covetousness marks their lives and they're never satisfied because the pleasures of the world can never get you there. So Peter says again, reminding them of judgment, children under a curse. They might deny judgment, but they're already under God's curse. Peter goes on to, to describe this greediness. Look at verse 15. They have gone astray by abandoning the straight path and have followed the path of Balaam, the son of Bosor, who loved the wages of wickedness but received a rebuke for his lawlessness. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Peter takes them to the story of Balaam, surely known among his, his readers from Numbers 22. You remember the story hired by Balak to curse the people of God, and we read in this text, Jude also tells us that Balaam does this for profit. He does this for personal gain. And God steps into the story. God opposes him. God sends the angel of the Lord to halt his tracks. And you surely remember that Balaam's donkey sees the angel before Balaam does. And the donkey diverts his path and and Balaam strikes him, and then the angel of the Lord is there again, and the donkey crushes Balaam's foot against a wall, and Balaam strikes him again and a third time. The donkey just stops and crouches, and Balaam strikes the donkey a, a third time, and then the donkey speaks up with a human voice and says, why do you keep hitting me? Haven't I always been a good donkey? Ask the question. And we see this. This animal is more aware of the presence of God in the story than the prophet who is blinded by his greed, living for the fleeting paying no attention to possible punishment, paying no attention to the wrong of ignoring God, living for that which disappears, and that just makes no sense. That's irrational. 
So we stop there for a moment and consider their, their character boldly arrogant, ignoring the demonic, acting like animals, sinning in the daylight, sexual sin always on their minds, seducing others to sin, greedy, teaching others, even whatever they call the things of God for, for personal gain. You put all that together, and it's hard to miss Peter's indignation at these teachers and why he so strongly speaks of their coming judgment. Because their character is ungodly. Well, we move then in verse 17 to the next section of the Scripture, and we learn there that their influence is evil. Their influence is evil. Pick up in verse 17, and let's look again. Peter, again, just piles up the pictures. He wants us to get this. He wants us to see the seriousness of, of these false teachers. Verse 17, these people are springs without water, mist driven by a storm. The gloom of darkness has been reserved for them. Hear that judgment there again. For by using boastful, empty words, they seduce with fleshly desires and debauchery people who have barely escaped from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption since people are enslaved to whatever defeats them. Listen to the descriptions again. Whatever they offer to those who listen to them is only dryness and confusion. They're springs without water, an image that surely works well in an arid land. What they claim to promise, they cannot deliver. Thirsty people come to them for answers and direction, but they would find from their teaching no water. And that kind of deception, that kind of deception is such that the teachers will be consigned to darkness. Again, we hear that reminder, they are going to be judged. And we read again that they seduce others. They're dangling that bait in front of others to, to lead them into sin. And in fact, we see this. Look with me again at verse 18. For by uttering boastful, empty words, they seduce with fleshly desires and debauchery people who have barely escaped from those who live in error. That latter phrase, again, scholars debate. It appears that what we read here is these are folks who more recently profess their faith in Jesus. They're young believers if they are believers at all. They're at least young in their professed faith. So all of this is especially evil because these false teachers particularly aim at those who have not been grounded, those who are weak, that untrained person. How do they do it? With boastful words. Again, they speak with seductive confidence. And you know, that's, that's part of the problem with false teachers. I have never heard of a false teacher who's boring. I've never heard that. I will tell you, I have heard some speakers who speak truth in a boring way, and that too is problematic. Boastful words. 
then with debauchery. They're teaching these people, you can live however you want to live sexually without fear of repercussion. And surely that was attractive to a fallen world. And surely that was alluring to those who newly professed their faith, who might have been wrestling with the temptation still. Jesus said, you can live however you want to live. And they offer them some kind of freedom. Douglas Moo points out that, that maybe it's freedom from spiritual powers, maybe it's freedom from coming judgment, maybe it's freedom from moral restraints, and you put all this together, and it seems like the latter is probably the primary one. Freedom to live however you want to live. And then Peter says, here's the irony of this. These teachers who offer freedom are themselves slaves of corruption. They've denied the Lord, who is the master, and they have been mastered by something else. The teacher of freedom wears chains himself as they seduce others into their trap. And then look at how Peter concludes this. Look at verse 20 again. For if, having escaped the world's impurity through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in these things and defeated, the last state is worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than, after knowing it, to turn back from the holy command delivered to them. It has happened to them According to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a washed sow returns to wallowing in the mud. Again, a passage that scholars debate. Peter turns to a couple of proverbs to help us see the condition of these, of these false teachers. They've turned away from whatever they called faith. They don't have the faith of true believers. How do we know that? Well, you read this in context of Peter's other writing. You go back to 1 Peter, and we read there that, that a genuine faith, as Peter describes it, gives us an inheritance, an inheritance that is imperishable. It is undefiled. It is unfading. And a genuine faith is marked by believers who endure to the end because they're guarded by the power of God, and that's not the condition of these false teachers. Rather, they show by their teachings and their actions they were never truly followers of Christ. They'd gone through the motions. They'd taken the right steps. They'd professed faith. They even somehow fit in the church. I suspect others called them Christians. But they showed their true nature by returning to who they really were. Like a dog that returns to its own vomit. Like a pig that's been cleansed but returns to the mud. Even this morning, I was talking with one of my missionary colleagues, one of my team members for the IMB, and we were talking about this passage, and, and he said, he said, now Chuck, if you need proof that a dog returns to its own vomit, I've seen that happen. All right, tell me. He said it was 1983, so this was so, so capturing him that he remembers it this far out. He said he was dog-sitting for a lady. He fed the dog. The dog walked over to the other side of the room, promptly threw up, 
walked away, went back and ate his vomit. And my missionary friend said to me, as some of you might be experiencing right now, it was one of the most disgusting things I've ever seen in my life. But you know what? Maybe it ought to be that when we see someone who seemingly has walked through the motions of Christianity and turned away from it and was never a genuine believer and winds up worse in the last state than the first, maybe that ought to make us sick. Maybe that ought to wound us. For it would have been better for them, Peter says, to never have known the way of righteousness than to turn to Christ in word only and then turn back. Why? Because to turn back is to be like the man that Jesus described, possessed of a demon, and that demon is cast out, and that empty house, then seven more demons return, and he's worse off than he ever was. To turn back is to, is to now face even greater judgment because now they're accountable for increased knowledge. And whenever you rebel against the truth, it's just harder to go back. It's harder to return to the truth. And so Peter dramatically reminds his readers, his listeners, these false teachers, their character is ungodly. Their influence is evil. They're deceiving. They're snaring. They're misleading. And it would be easy for all of us to stop right there and say, we're going to go after all the false teachers. But if we do that, we miss the point that this word speaks to us too. Remember my title is Testing the Heart of the Teacher. So we go back to where we started. It's easy to critique false teachers, and that we must do. So hear me say that. But never consider our own hearts. So I want to bring all this together with a series of questions for us to consider for ourselves. Even those of us who ground everything in the Word of God and we stand on the authority of the Word still have to look at our hearts. So here's question number one. Do I adequately understand my responsibility to protect those I lead from false teaching? Regardless of what our role is, Wherever God's placed us, those we lead, those we teach, we do have a shepherding responsibility to guard them from the false teachers. And that's a heavy weightiness as we shepherd the souls of people for whom we care. Question number two. Do I understand how strong my influence is as one who leads God's people? Do I understand how strong my influence is? I've been teaching a long time. This is my 25th year of teaching. Every once in a while, I'll run into a student that I taught years ago, and, and, and he'll say something like, do you remember when you said this in class? I mean, decades ago. And the truth is, I don't remember yesterday, and I probably don't even remember the student's name. But he reminds me, this is what you said, and I've hung on to this all these years. And on, on one hand, that sounds like an incredible blessing and honor. 
But you know what? It's also a warning that people listen to what we say. Even when we teach falsely. Do I understand how strong my influence is? Here's question number three. Do I ever live as if judgment won't happen? Or if it does happen, it'll be a long time from now. Do I live as if I'll not stand before God anytime soon? Question four, do I ignore the reality of the evil one? Do I give any thought to the schemes of the enemy? Or do I, by my ignorance, live in defeat? Question five, am I in any area of my life increasingly willing to sin in the open? Am I in any area of my life increasingly willing to sin in the open? That what I used to hide, I no longer hide. Let me give you one quick example. I hear it all the time. A new friendship with a believer, pastors coming together perhaps, a mentor, a mentee, you start the relationship, everybody wants to be godly, everybody's careful in what you say, and then you get more acquainted with each other, you get more comfortable with each other, and the joke you would never have told on the first day you will now tell. That story you would never have told you will now tell. That act you would not have done you will now do. Because you're allowing your sin to be in the open. Question number six, does lust consume me? That ongoing controlling sin. Do my eyes quickly gravitate in the direction of sin? Question seven, am I influencing anyone towards sin rather than away from it? Am I influencing anyone towards sin rather than away from it? Am I a witness and an example, or am I a stumbling block for somebody? Question eight, am I greedy for money? That's, that's surely the picture here in this chapter, but I also want us to think about, am I greedy for recognition? Am I greedy for position? Am I greedy for power? Because you see, there's a very fine line between praying, Lord, please use me for your glory, and then saying, God, please make sure that Baptist Press knows what you're doing through me. Am I ever greedy for recognition? Question number nine. Am I offering freedom to others while I myself am in bondage? And I would challenge you tonight, if you find yourself in bondage, your profs, the dean of students, we'd love to talk to you. We don't want you living in bondage. Question 10, might others see me as boldly arrogant? Listen to the question, might somebody else see me as that? Because most arrogant people I know seldom recognize their own arrogance. It takes somebody from the outside to point it out. And then I must ask this question. Am I considering returning to my own vomit? I don't know where you are. You find yourself lingering there, considering that, I plead with you, talk to us. We've talked about false teachers. I want to finish with this, and I'll ask the band to come on up. I want you to think 
not about false teachers, but godly teachers. Over the years, I've been blessed to have many teachers in my life, pastors, professors, mentors. The ones I remember most, here's who they were and are. Their content is biblical without exception. Their character is godly. Their influence is powerful because I've wanted to walk with God just like they did. So Southeasterners, go and be that kind of godly teacher. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.